And welcome back to Dads on the Air, coming to you around Australia on the Community Radio Network. In this program, we bring you informing and entertaining conversations with a wide range of interesting people on topics of fatherhood, family and parenting, men's and boys' issues and more. Hi, I'm Bill Cable, and our special guest today is Hugh McKay. Hugh is a social psychologist and the author of 22 books, including eight novels. He has had a 60-year career in social research and has been awarded honorary doctorates by five Australian universities. In 2015, Hugh was awarded an AO. He is currently an honorary professor in the Research School of Psychology at ANU in Canberra. Hugh first came onto our program 10 years ago, so it's a big welcome back. Hugh, welcome to Dads on the Air. Thank you very much, Bill. Delighted to be back. So, Hugh, your latest book is called The Kindness Revolution. Revolutions are not what we usually uh, expect when we talk about kindness. So <laughs> no. What kindness are you optimistically looking for? I think my the, the, the thesis of the book really is, uh, look how we drew on our reserves of kindness, look how we put kindness into practice during the appalling events of 2020, the bushfires followed by the pandemic with all the disruptions to our lives that that entailed. Uh, Look how brilliantly we responded. Look how kind we were to each other. Now, let's turn the crisis into a revolution. Let's not just go back to the way things were before we dealt with the crisis, when we were probably too stressed, too rushed, too busy, not in touch with our neighbours, not reflective enough, uh, probably travelling too much, running too hard, buying too much stuff. Let's not just slip back into the way we were, but let's remember what it felt like to be a community in which we were being kind and respectful uh, and inclusive uh, towards each other, where we're paying more attention to the possibility that neighbours in our own street might be at risk of social isolation, so we responded kindly to that sort of challenge. Why stop? Why why become so pathetic, (laughs) so feeble, that it takes a crisis to remind us that uh, kindness is the way we create harmonious society. Kindness is the way we create stable, cohesive, functioning local neighbourhoods and communities. Let's not let this go. Let's remember where we got to now and see if we can keep it up. I think you describe it at one point as as, uh, never waste a crisis. And uh, we've certainly got a few crises on our hand at the moment, haven't we? But uh, do you you see it as a radical change to get to this uh, this level? Well, the, the true answer to that, Bill, I suppose, is yes and no. It's not radical because, in fact, we humans, being members of a social species, are actually hardwired for kindness. Neuroscientists can look into our brain now and tell us what's going on, and they tell us there's actually a cooperative centre in the brain, which is fascinating but not exactly mind-blowing when you think about what would be the requirement to be a member of a social species. Obviously, cooperation would have to come naturally to us because we do rely 
nurture us and sustain us and give us that all-important sense of belonging that's so fundamental to our mental and emotional health. So being hardwired for cooperation is no surprise. And, of course, the sign of how we cooperate, the key to cooperation, is that, that we behave kindly and respectfully towards each other. So, no, it's not radical. It's just simply getting in touch with our deep human nature, our glorious human nature. But but the other answer to your question is, yes, we've, we've slipped away from this. Before 2020, we had become a rather more fragmented and therefore a rather more individualistic society. And I think we were in risk, at risk of losing the art of kindness and becoming a bit... We talked about the, the me generation, the me culture. We had entered a period in which self-centeredness had become more characteristic of us, our obsession with identity, personal identity, with how we're all different from each other is a symptom of that. So we do have to recapture something that we have had previously, that we always seem to manage in a crisis, and that is really part of our fundamental genetic makeup. Now, you've been listening to people telling you their stories for 60 years. Yep. Um, were, was there a general trend downwards, do you think, or over those 60 years, were people getting kinder or getting worse, or what was the overall well, trend? It's been up and down, but mm. I think people, my, my research respondents, certainly through the 80s and 90s and into these early years of the 21st century, a very common theme, listening to people talking about the state of the world and their lives, has been that neighbourhoods are not functioning quite as they used to, that people are not looking out for each other as much as they did in the past, unless there was an actual crisis, uh, that we had become a rather more competitive and rather less kind and considerate kind of society. That's been a very general view of ourselves that I've heard from people, certainly over the last, consistently over the last 20 years. And, and of course, no one ever says that with pleasure or pride, Bill. I mean, no, no one says, for example, in one of our big cities, oh, I don't know my neighbours. They don't say that as though that's a thing to be proud of. Mm. When we make those sort of uh, critiques of what's happening to our society, there's some sadness about it. There's some regret that this has happened. But people often feel powerless to know what to do about it. So, again... I suppose one of my motivations for writing this book is to encourage people to think, well, actually, if you feel that way, you can do something about it because it all starts with the individual. It starts with a, a relationship, a family, a street, a suburb, a workplace, a school. It's, it's person by person, case by case, that we start to rebuild a culture of kindness. You note that uh, in previous times we've generally put reliance in our institutions the the churches the banks the uh the politicians all sorts of these institutions even marriage if you call that an institution but uh, there's been a decline in trust is that why you think the revolution is called for because it doesn't start from the top it does start at the bottom as, as you were just describing what's happened at the top i think is a reflection of how society has changed but it's a bit of a 
it's a bit of a chicken and egg thing, Bill, obviously. I mean, when when we see institutions that have become too powerful and have been corrupted by their own power and who've become less sensitive and less kind in their attitudes to the work they do and the communities that they're meant to serve, we become very jaundiced about that. We do lose trust in them. We don't always see that that's a bit of a reflection of what's been happening in society at large. So I don't think the revolution will start at the top. I mean, revolutions like this never start at the top. Mm. It's always individuals in, in local settings starting to say we've got to live differently, we've got to start acting differently, we've got to, in this case we've got to start acting more kindly towards each other. We've got to dream of the kind of society we would like to live in and then start living as if it is that kind of society. That's how the transformation occurs. Look, on that, that bright note, uh, we might take a break. Uh, about this time, Hugh, we always ask our guests if they'd like to pick a song for the program. So could you tell us which one you've picked? Yes, I'm afraid our listeners will be able to guess without a moment's hesitation what I've chosen. It's Glenn Campbell's Try a Little Kindness. Standing by the road With a heavy load From the seeds he sowed And if you see your sister Falling by the way Just stop and say You're going the wrong way And that was Try a Little Kindness. 
uh, performed for us today by Glenn Campbell, and that was the uh, special choice by our guest today, Hugh McKay, who is the author of uh, his latest book, The Kindness Revolution. Hugh, we've, uh, it, it's interesting in how you point out that uh, many of our biggest decisions in life are not made because they are necessarily the most rational decisions. Um, I think you point at uh, who we marry, whether we will have kids, where do we live, which job will I take, all those huge decisions. But, uh, I mean, I guess drawing from your own example, it's, it's not necessarily, necessarily made on some rational decision-making process, is it? Yeah, I think one of the, that, it's, a, it's a, a good point to bring up, uh, Bill, because I think one of the reasons why we need to be kinder to each other is that um, certainly as we get older we begin to realise that humans are not the rational creatures that we pretend to be. We're basically non-rational creatures. We're much more ruled by the heart than the head. A lot of the things that we think of as life's big decisions, as you've just mentioned, have t- turned out to be sort of accidents. They sort mm-hmm. of happened. Things evolved and we found ourselves married to this person with this many kids doing this job, living in this house. And people, you know, in my research over the years, I've said to people, let's talk about how this all happened. And people can often say, I can't tell you how it happened. It just happened. <laughs> um, so I think when we say to, you, you sometimes find particularly partners saying to each other, why can't you be more rational? Well, the answer to that question is, I can't be more rational because I'm human. You know, if you'd wanted a computer, you should have married one. Um, So I think that's a a reminder of the fact that not only are we non-rational beings, we're inherently imperfect. We we don't do things uh, as well as we might dream of doing them. We don't manage our relationships as lovingly or as kindly as we might. We lose our temper. We sometimes give in to jealousy or anger, or etc. We're, we're, we're fundamentally imperfect, but we still manage to love each other. And we still manage, here's a remarkable thing to say, we still manage to show kindness even towards people who are behaving badly, uh, even towards total strangers. I think, Bill, that's one of the loveliest things to be said about human beings, about belonging to this species. Isn't it incredible? that we're the kind of people who can be kind to people we don't know at all. We can be kind to people we don't like. We can be kind to people we don't agree with. So that idea that we're not rational creatures, that we are absolutely freighted with imperfections, I think should lead us to say, therefore, let's go easy. Let's cut each other a bit of slack. Let's be ready to apologise when we've stumbled. Let's, Let's be ready to forgive someone who's apologised to us. Uh, Let's be a little more attentive, a a little kinder to each other, knowing first that we're all in this thing together. We share our common humanity, but also that we all fall short of some gold standard that we sometimes imagine as the fully rational person. And I suppose there is a rational underpinning, uh, as you point out, I think that uh, forgiveness, even if it comes late, can be like it's a poison inside you if you if you're carrying this uh this ongoing um, non-forgiveness of something mm. that might have happened yeah well um, i've mentioned a couple of times in a couple of contexts in the book that if we feel we have been wronged uh, or offended and someone has apologized for that if we don't forgive them then we condemn ourselves to remain a victim of whatever has been done to us 
forgiving someone is a great liberation. I mean, it's liberation for them because if they're feeling guilty about what they did, well, they've been forgiven. But it's a liberation for us as well because it means we're no longer going to be a victim of this situation. Now, you mentioned earlier that uh, we could aim for a, a much kinder society and one we could be proud of. That doesn't necessarily mean following the US or UK, but I think you give some other good examples of, of things we could model ourselves on. Well, it's interesting when you think of some of the ways in which a society might change in the direction of being a bit kinder. Um, when we think about things like educational equality, well, we look at Finland. There's a good example. When we think of moving more rapidly towards clean energy, who would have guessed that the world leader in clean energy at the moment is Germany? Mm. <laughs> uh, even New Zealand, they tr signed a treaty uh, with with the Maori that could be a model for a treaty that we could still sign with our First Nations people. We, we think about shortcomings in our healthcare system and you look at somewhere like Denmark where no one ever pays a single krona for medical attention except of course via taxation. There, there are other countries that have got all sorts of things running better than we've got them running uh, and I think it's appropriate for us sometimes to look at these other places and say, well, why haven't we done as well as that? And what would have to change for us to do better? And even if we make some small steps in that direction, um, at an individual level, you share your own story about some early attempts at dating and career choice. Uh, I guess the moral is never give up. We will just keep, uh, we should just keep perhaps at that local level you mentioned earlier, keep working towards this, uh, this kindness goal. Yes, that's right. We can become true revolutionaries. I mean, the true revolutionary doesn't say, oh, this is all too hard, I think I'll give it up. Uh, if we think that this is a goal worth striving for, then that's absolutely right. One step at a time, but keep taking those steps. Don't give up. And, and if we show kindness towards someone and we don't get shown kindness in return, so what? We're revolutionaries. <laughs> we, we're trying to change the world step by step. There will be setbacks, there will be discouragements, but if you adopt kindness, respectfulness towards other people as your default position, it's going to begin to make a huge difference, but it'll be a gradual, the ripples will go out. Uh, it'll be a gradual process, but the, but the combined total effect of this will be enormous. I mean, you still seem to have the fire in your belly. Um, most of your career, you've really been listening to what people say. Do you now feel uh, um, more of a desire to, to influence events in society? Yeah, that's an, that's an interesting question, Bill, because as you say, as a social researcher, it's been my professional obligation to hold my tongue, mm. uh, listen to what people say, try to make sense of it, uh, interpret it. Uh, help to explain people to themselves. I think that's the role of the social researcher. Um, and so whether it's politics or anything else, I've, I've sort of kept quiet about what my own feelings are. Um, but now, obviously, my research career is at an end uh, and I'm probably not going to write much more. I might uh, continue to write some fiction, but I probably won't produce another non-fiction book. So with this one, I was pretty determined to be a bit more outspoken uh, and to, as you say, really to try and influence people to act 
on the on the feelings, the aspirations, the motivations that they already have. I, I'm not trying to convince anyone that kindness is a good idea or that a kinder society would be a lovelier place to live. Everyone knows that. Uh, all I'm trying to convince them of is that it's time to take the necessary steps. And uh, towards the end of the book, you you talk, uh, I think, uh, encouragingly, really, about uh, the process of death and dying, which we've all got to face one day. For most of us, um, you point out that it's not necessarily a sad decline, but but more of a, a, a rounding off. Uh, you get some satisfaction and insight and acceptance. Is that what you've found as you hit your 70s and 80s? Yes, absolutely. I, um, I've, I'm surprised. I suppose I, I didn't know what to expect, but... There's this well-known um, U-shaped graph of, of feelings of life satisfaction, which tends to decline through adolescence and 20s and 30s into our 40s. Many people experience the famous midlife crisis around about their 40s when they start to think, oh, yeah, there must be more to life than this, there's more to me than this, and they start uh, becoming a little bit less concerned about doing the right thing and saying the right thing and and establishing their sense of identity and so on, and a bit more uh, concerned with others, a bit more concerned with the well-being of our society, not just of ourselves. Uh, and so, not surprisingly, when you look at that graph, you see through the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, deep sense of life satisfaction tends to increase. So most people are feeling better about life, managing it better, understanding their emotions, understanding each other, being kinder, being more tolerant, uh, not universally, but generally speaking, that increases. So people in their 50s, 60s, 70s are typically more satisfied with life than they were when they were in their 20s, 30s and 40s. I don't suppose that's amazing, but it does contradict the picture that's often painted of elderly people as being a sort of sad, miserable lot hanging around waiting to die. Uh, the opposite is the, true, the truth for most cases. If people don't have health or financial challenges to face, uh, it's, it, it, the, the golden years is a good description. You paint a way of being able to use uh, death and dying in a practical sense now, in the sense that you, if you just take a second and look back at your life from the point of view that you're on your deathbed, uh, yes. would, would this make would this be a good decision to do whatever you're proposing? Yeah, I think it's a very useful uh, reference uh, reference point to say, well, at, at the end, I mean, the, the cliche is, you know, at the end, no one ever says, I wish I'd spent more time at the office. And that's a very good example. You know, imagine this at the end. Imagine looking back over your life and saying, well, was that a good move? Was that a good decision? Uh, was that the right thing to do? It's quite a useful point of view to adopt uh, when we're trying to decide whether we should do this or that or take this or that course of action. Uh, of course, this is all a bit dependent on health and I guess uh, in particular uh, things like uh, you know, mental decline. In, in that context, you also have a, a, a brief discussion about euthanasia and I, I gather you're in, you favour that in some situations. Yes, in some situations and under carefully controlled conditions, I think, where someone is suffering intolerable pain and distress and clearly the, their life doesn't have much more to offer and not much time to run, if, particularly if they want to be relieved of that pain and suffering, 
uh, and there's medical support and family support, then I'm totally in favour of that person being relieved. But what, of course, I'm not in favour of is people just unilaterally, unilaterally deciding that someone else would be better off dead. But properly, uh, with proper consultation and sensitivity, I think it's very hard to say anything other than we should allow people uh, the peace and the dignity uh, of having that kind of suffering relieved in the end. Well, with modern research and developments in medicine, we can expect to live longer. And, and I guess concomitant with that, it doesn't just mean uh, being in a wheelchair in a nursing home for an extra 20 years. What, what we're saying is you live your life more fully for longer. Yes, exactly. Uh, and, and uh, uh, you know, I think you are an amazing example. I don't know what your, uh, what your secret is, but, uh, you know, to be still producing these... Uh, beautifully argued books and to be appearing and doing everything you do um is there anything you can credit your longevity to <laughs> uh probably the explanation is genetic um but also i mean i have kept physically active and i haven't contemplated stopping uh, writing and thinking and studying our society even though i'm no longer a sort of hands-on employed researcher I'm still of course vitally interested in what's happening and how we're coping with what's happening so yeah I think staying staying alive is a big part of it is staying alert staying interested staying engaged involved not not retreating from the daily struggle and sharing the struggle with other people yeah, that's. I think there's a lot to be learned, and there's a lot to be learned in this book, The Kindness Revolution by Hugh McKay, which is out now. I think uh, all I could say at this point, Hugh, is uh, viva la revolution. Ah, indeed, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Thanks very much, Bill. So, uh, yes, look, uh, we've run out of time today, but uh, I just wanted to say uh, that we'd love to hear from any of our listeners. You can go to our website, dadsontheair.com.au, send us an email and we'll be in touch. If you'd like to listen to this or any of our shows, go to your favourite podcast app or our website, dadsontheair.com.au, or you can follow us on Facebook or Twitter. And so it just remains uh, for me to once again thank our special guest, uh, Hugh McKay. Thank you very much again for coming on Dads on the Air. Great pleasure. Thank you very much, Bill. And we'll be back next week with another show on Dads on the Air. And if you see your sister falling by the way, just stop and say, you're going the wrong way. Helping hand 